0: Just a quick warning this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. On today's episode of the Stick Up podcast, we have former NRL footballer and professional boxer Joey Williams. Joey Williams, welcome to the Stick Up.
1: It's good to be back, brother. We're always in contact, Mm. you and I, and we're always conversing about different things. So it's good to be just sitting in person to be able to have a conversation about some stuff. This is the beauty of podcasts, it's just people get nervous
0: about podcasts or. I just find that they're just a a conversation. Two blokes having a yarn. Yeah. Two brothers having a yarn. And that was that thing with that last podcast. The feedback I got from it was just amazing and uh, in the depth that we got to. And that's why I enjoy your conversations. We get deep. We talk about things that there's no shame about anything we talk about. You know what I mean? We can talk about feelings and emotions and all these things that men should be talking about. The difference, I think, the way I speak
1: about things or even this isn't my words they're probably other people's words where they say that i articulate it very well as far as just breaking it down into a way that we can that that everyone can understand hmm. we can sit in a, a therapist's office and they can have conversations and spit out words that are a meter and a half long or we can break it down and just make it really simple for everyone to understand. And that's, I'm a communicator, Russ. and a good and, one at that. And at that, probably lucky to be an Aboriginal man that, that we've been storytellers for thousands of years. I just go into that narrator, that storyteller, and just try and have
0: conversations with people and help them to connect and take people on the journey. I think, and you do it well, and I, and I say this, and I'll say it again, I think... I've never come across anyone that can articulate trauma that you the way you can, on a layman's terms for everyone to understand. Everyone understands it, and everyone understands. And a little funny story, a little backstory. I think you know where I'm going. Was I said to Joey? I said, "Mate, what media training did you have?" And he said, "What do you mean, what media training did you have?" I said, "The way you talk, you're well posed." And he goes, "Oh, it's no media training. That's just concussion from football." It's more than that,
1: and people could probably take that the wrong way as well. Is that for me my head goes extremely fast mm. and is that ADD you think i've still? never no i've never been diagnosed with anything mm. like that but it's this narrative that's inside my head that goes extremely fast so when you're having questions with me even halfway through you getting that out i had about four answers in me, yeah. in my head ready to go yeah so when i'm sitting whether it's live interviews or even on some tv shows and things like that I have this narrative that's just flying around a million yeah. miles an hour and it's just deciphering what I should and shouldn't say. Yeah. So I know that I, an easy way to put it is that some people get tongue tied at times when they're giving answers, whether it be to the media or whatever, they're giving answers and they get themselves in trouble because they say the wrong things or it can yeah. be taken as the wrong way, is that I'm extremely lucky that- every single word that comes out of my mouth i process it first yeah more I people se- should do that though i can see it coming out of coming out of my mouth before it actually comes out yeah. and i know what to say and what not to say and yeah. and whilst that for a long time was the noise in my head or the conversation in my head was deemed as mm. a mental illness or deemed as something that's negative yeah. having that conversation in your head or voices in your head whatever you want to call it i was actually sitting down with a fairly well-respected Aboriginal leader and academic, Marcy Langton, hmm. Danny Melbourne, and she said to me, my dear, that's not a burden, that's a gift. Hmm. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you've got this extremely fast narrative inside your head that you can then decipher what word comes out before it actually comes out. So I've got three or four things ready to go on the top of my head. There's some things that I probably shouldn't say. There's some things that eh, might get me in trouble and test the boundaries a bit. And then there's some things I like where trouble, I go, Joe. I like yeah, trouble. Like edgy. Yeah, yeah. I like edgy. Yeah, yeah. I it. And for me, I won't sit there, but I can talk that yeah. way. And I can sit in and and talk really eloquently and articulate as far as Oh, you've got that 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 in spades. You've got that in spades. Then I can be edgy. Yeah, yeah. And I don't like... But I was actually talking to my daughter last night and her friend, actually one of her her friends, was actually at a session that I was giving to this corporate with predominantly non-Indigenous people and we were talking about the impacts of colonization and the trauma that it's caused and how it impacts our behaviors now and, and how intergenerational it is I, and how it, how we, we're normalized sense. we normalize certain yeah. behaviors within our family unit yeah. which then our kids grow up with them because yeah. that's what they see and like my daughter's mate she said your dad's full ripping these people here like smashing them mm. with some of the hard hitting truths that I was she said but he's saying it in a way that's so smart and they can't get upset by mm. But they would get upset if you started swearing and just started swinging from the hilt. But you say
0: mm. it with articulation and you say it hard-hitting. And delivery, yeah. It's the truth. But you deliver really well, Joe. You deliver really well. You're not... You, don't, you're not, you have this really... It's, I wouldn't say a passive, but it's not an aggressive way of delivering something, so it's not confrontational. That's part of your gift. That's the thing, right, is what people deem as
1: confronting. If it's delivered in an aggressive manner... Then people just put up their walls and they're not going to listen. Mm. But if you deliver something that's hard-hitting, that's straight between the eyes, but it's also passive and in a way that's inviting people to sit at the table, then you're gonna have more, you're gonna have more people that wanna sit there and listen and, yeah. and engage further. Because yeah. if you just I've found mm. that if you just Put if you say things that make other people put the walls up, you've lost them for sure. You're not, you're not going to get them engaging in the conversations you need to have.
0: For sure, I, I, I like, that's what I love. Like I talk to you all day, and I say this. that's why I wanted you to come back on the podcast because I got personally, I got so much out. I, was, I, I don't like to say I've got favourite podcast now because it <laughs> it's it's disrespecting other people, but definitely yours is is there. And Joe, let's talk about what I didn't touch much on last time, like life after being a, a sportsman for you. A lot of people struggle with it. There's a lot of conversation
1: and, and there's a hell of a lot of people that that struggle with life after sport. And it's, and it's you look at it as life after sport, or even like I see now, I see sport, what I did was a job, mm. right? So life after your job, mm. and then you look back at it, was that my life's purpose, mm. Sport wasn't my purpose. Sport was my I guess it was my it was my elevator pitch to do what I do now.
0: Yeah.
1: Like it was not even an elevator pitch. It was a way, it was a way to get in front of people. My the work that I do is now is far more important than throwing a footy around and getting punched in the head as a boxer. Yeah. But it but it also took me that to have those careers, those lifestyles, those jobs to be able to do what I do now. Because if I was just someone and any bloke off the street that went to uni and learned about all this sort of stuff, I'm probably not going to have
0: the access to the crowd or to the people that I do. Because you're known as Joey Williams, ex-South Sydney footballer, ex-boxer, and that opens the door. That do, do, of course, you fair to say. Yeah, of course. Like when I, and
1: let's not forget, Russ, I've been doing this for, for a decade now. Yeah. The work that I do and what I started with to what I do now is very different. Like it's worlds apart yeah. actually to, to what I started with. But the initial doors that were opened were around Joe Williams, the footy player, and the current boxer is coming to tell his story. And people thought I was going there to talk about footy and boxing. But then, when I started talking about mental health and I started talking about this conversation that's inside my head, this conversation that's dark and it's deep and it's terrifying at times, we're related to the average person. Yeah. Like the amount of people after I very first started coming out and saying that I had troubles with my mental health, the amount of people that come up to me and said, Joe, I go through the exact same thing. I just never had the words to describe what it was. I lost count for how many people it was. And for me, it was, I never ever, because I got some beef early days
0: that people were going, because you're living in, you're playing in a very ego-driven sport, rugby league and boxing. It's very much, it's very a show-nothing you don't show no emotion. You only, it's, if anything, in both sports, is aggression, the only thing you show is so you're showing the totally opposite to aggression. You're showing vulnerability. Well, you are not allowed to show that.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. You? You're no. not allowed to show that in those sort of sports. And I think we, as a society, have been so conditioned that we applaud that tough stuff, and we don't applaud vulnerability. Mm. Where there's real strength in what vulnerability is. Because it gives us a different access to ourselves. Mm. Being vulnerable isn't about just telling your story and blurting, blurting out your soul. Mm. Being vulnerable is going to the places where you don't want to go and sitting in that and starting to understand what it is and then being able to verbalize it. Mm. So being vulnerable, we all of us, Russ, mm. all of us, having conversations recently, I'm a massive deflector. Right, oh, So I can, get in, I can get into deep conversations with people and then I'll just crack a joke. Mm. And then people who know me or even the therapist that I sit with, they know exactly what I'm doing. Mm. But most importantly in that moment, I'm starting to know what I'm doing. When that little voice inside my head is telling me to project somewhere else or telling me to deflect somewhere else into a joke or to change the subject again, that fast narrative that's happening inside my head, it's telling me to sit with it. No, don't go away from that, Joe. Have a think of why you're actually trying to deflect away from that.
0: Sit with that. That's a beautiful unawareness. To grow into that beautiful it's, it's awareness. It's taken me many years, brother. <laughs> I know. I, you know I'm, I'm bad for it, especially when with females, when they start talking about how do you feel and it's like, hey, geez, your hair looks good or I can love your toenails, I'm bad for that. And when you were just describing that, I just caught myself doing the same thing. I was going, I oh, do, man, I'm on that. I'm on that same path. And I think when you have the ability like you just do to articulate that to people, you put them in the moment. I do that. I do that. You create for your own, I guess, your own digging deep and diving deep and work on yourself you're allowing someone else to gift. You're fast-tracking them. What an amazing gift you have. What it is, Russ, and I do a, I do so
1: much work internally when I'm out on the road driving. Yeah, I love Listening drive. to different podcasts. And, yeah. and I don't surround myself with a hell of a lot of people all the time. Mm. Like, I'm in front of people every single day of the week yeah. with what I do for a job. But I don't surround myself with a lot of people all the time. And that allows me to sit with me a bit. Mm. And Do you find a good road trip will
0: do that? I find road trip therapy. I call it's the best it, medicine, mate. Yeah. It's I the like best medicine. And road trip and lawn mowing. All of these different forms of therapy have been
1: bastardized. Mm-hmm. To it's almost like people are now doing things that they actually don't know what the benefits are. People are doing things and just because they can get paid to do it, it's been it's becoming bastardized. Mm. You look at some of the the cold therapy or mm. ice plunging and mm. things like that that people talk about. A lot of people don't even actually know the process of what's happening within yep. the body and within the brain when they're doing it. But they'll just say, "Oh, we're doing these we're doing these cold plunges." Mm. The the buzzwords at the moment. Yeah, we did them every week after training for footy. Like it was just ice baths. That's, yeah, just yeah, what, that's you what you do what I for call recovery. An ice right? bath. Yeah. Um, Start the
0: inflammation.
1: Yeah, so people don't actually know the benefits of what it yeah. is, and so I'm a little bit—I won't even say protective—but I'm a little bit careful of some informations and stuff that I do share. But one of the one of the best things that we can do, one of the absolute key things that we can do as individuals, as men, is learn how to meditate. Mm. Get it in the space of meditation and learn to slow down what's going on inside our head because once we can slow down what's going on inside our head we can actually decipher or separate our actions from our thoughts and that's You see the shirt that I've got on today. That's the logo for the new academy that I've just recently founded. And it's working with young people at a a really young age.
0: And and a lot of the work you do is with childhood trauma and that sort of Mm -hmm. stuff, isn't it? And the enemy within your book. You're a guy that's, mate, you remind me of those cave divers. (laughs) That's an interesting analogy. It's Uh, a cave diver. Like you've just dug, fucking, you've went to the depth.
1: Yeah, and... As I was alluding to a minute ago with the academy and the work that you say that we do a lot of work with childhood trauma is that people don't actually know the impacts of what childhood trauma is Mm. or they don't actually know that everyone is at different parts along the journey, along the road of being impacted by childhood trauma. They don't know
0: what trauma is. Mm. They think it's the big things. Yeah. which it is without doubt. But Give without... us a few examples of childhood trauma, Joe. Give us a couple, like some of the behaviours. Behaviours is a good one because it's – I always talk and and, and say that behaviour is
1: language. Yeah. Like we, we judge young people, we judge everyone for their behaviours yeah. without actually knowing or understanding where they come from. But let's look at what actually trauma is. People think it's the big things. Well, I said it before. People mm. think it's the big things, and it is that. The different challenges that we have that we're experienced to that we put onto others – but I guess that the way that I've learned what it is, and one of the one of the best definitions of it, is by a guy called Doctor Gabormate
0: when and addiction specialist. Yeah,
1: yeah, and he says that with trauma, trauma is not what happens to you; it's the process of what happens inside of you because of what happened to you. Mm. So you look at it right. Is that you've got a green jumper on right now? Right? You come and bang me in the face always. I'm going to be reminded of being banged in the face by anyone that I see with a colour of jumper Mm. on that same, same time, and that's not because the little old lady walking down the street is a scary person. It's because the process happened inside me that has made me that has formed coping strategies or protection mechanisms around what happened. Right. So we look at all the different challenges that happens within our childhood. And again, I'm not talking about the big things. I'm talking about the impact of being left to cry to sleep Mm -hmm. as a baby. How Mm -hmm. many times have we seen, heard, and witnessed that Mm -hmm. when babies are being left to self-settle or Mm self-soothe without actually understanding that babies cry themselves to a point where it's almost like they pass out. Mm from crying it's not oh they're just so tired they've cried themselves to sleep Mm. within that moment their brain and their body is actually forming coping strategies around that discomfort that discomfort is making them cry yeah and their body and their brain is actually forming a coping strategy to
0: dissociate from that yeah and that's a big thing with tra- trauma disassociation. I know from my own trauma, the ca- big, biggest coping mechanism for me was that it didn't happen. I pretended it didn't happen. I, I would use drugs and copious amounts of drugs to numb myself because I didn't want to engage in that feeling and the shame and all of that stuff that went with it because it hurt. It wasn't good. It was a horrible feeling. It was something that I got to the point where I couldn't live with. If I had to live with, I would have rather died. And that's...
1: There's so much in what you just said as well is that there's been, and obviously people who listen to these podcasts obviously and are aware of some of the content and so forth as well, that it, that it can be triggering. But when we talk about suicide and speaking with like thousands and thousands of people who have been fortunate enough to have survived different experiences or suicide attempts in their life, it's, and for me, I can honestly say that the, the day that, of my attempt, it wasn't that I need. That wasn't that I wanted to die. It's just that I didn't have any other tool
0: to make the pain end. Mm. I remember going to a rehab at Blue Mountains called West Mountain. This guy told me he said he give, I come out of a detox and there was a footpath that goes around the rehab or one that goes up the back stairs into the rehab. And he said you can walk into here. Mm. He said you're going to get some knowledge. And he said I'm actually you destroy your ability to use drugs comfortably and numb your pain. Or you can just go around that way. And he said, you mostly won't get that knowledge. He said, you'll pick it up later on in life, but you just won't get it yet. So you might get a few years of drug using. And he said, So what do you choose to do? I said, I'll go through the back stairs. And and I'll tell you something now, the ability to disassociate once I had that information in my subconscious or in my conscious, ruined my drug use. So I had to use copious amounts more mm. and more. And I started to overdose a lot and overdose a lot because I was trying to overcome this knowledge that Because the disassociation wasn't working anymore because I had this voice, that narrative in my head going, hey, man, this ain't right. This ain't the way to go about things. And I guess someone like yourself would be in that same situation. You have all this knowledge and drugs won't work, alcohol won't work, and that's why suicide becomes an option.
1: I think a lot of it as well is that whilst the the drugs and the alcohol are even relationships, Mm. That path that you were talking about, and for the people who can't visually see this, they're just listening on the podcast channels, that that there's a straight line where you can go and do something, hmm. or there's a path where you go around and you take the long route there. Yeah. You're going to end up at the same place eventually, yeah, yeah, but you can go quicker. And I was lucky that I got sober at 21. Right, I was yeah, I was I was twenty one, so I was lucky that I got sober at twenty one. I might have been twenty two, around that time anyway. But I was lucky that I didn't like the the end outcome. Like I've got friends now that I haven't seen for fifteen years that are coming to me saying, "Joe, now I understood. I understand what you did back then. You took that straight road to get there, and it was difficult and it was hard, man. It was hard in those early years, and they've gone the long route." and messed a fair few things up in their life, but they've ended out at the same place. You can go, you can attack it front on, or you can sidestep it a little bit and run away from, because that's essentially what we're doing, Russ. When we're in those challenging times, I'll challenge. There's people who can use drugs, alcohol, and use it as far as, and it's not problematic for their life. I don't know of many people, because mm. I reckon it, it'll eventually catches up. I'm not someone to... I'm not a professional in that area to say that, that it will impact everyone. But I'm saying that for the people who give away that stuff in their life, they get to the destination a hell of a lot better and a hell of a lot cleaner than what they would have if they hadn't taken that long road
0: around. I'm not the type of person, Joe, that can have one row of chocolate. I smash mm. the block. I can't yeah. have one Tim <laughs> Tim. I eat the packet. You know what I mean? It's, that's, that's my genetic makeup. I understand that. Is One. it is genetic makeup? This is the thing that we challenge as well. Yeah. Is it your genetic makeup, yeah. or is it that you formed
1: coping strategies? Yeah, you got me. Throughout your life, in the very early
0: years of your life, much longer than what you are, yeah. uh, what we're sitting here now, is yeah. You're right, and that's, And I'll be honest with you: a row of chocolate tastes good, feels good. So I have another one. Yeah. And I have another one. I have another one. You got me. Open. And what are you doing with that? Like yeah. like what we what we're actually doing
1: in that moment is we're chasing something. Yeah. With the alcohol and drugs or any other substance or even behaviors and things like that around relationships, we're chasing something. We need to go back at the start. And I always say don't look at what, look at why. Don't look at what the behavior is. Look at why the behavior is happening. And then we can start to go back to the start and and have a look at where it started from, and then start to sit with that young person who's just inside her head, because that's all it is. Yeah, It's that little person that's inside her head, the little person that's insecure at night and cries when they're by themselves. Mm. And you're a stand-up guy, and there's plenty of guys that, that you know and you've knocked with over the years, and same with me, that don't cry and don't like to admit they're yeah. crying. But the ability of those people, when they're sitting by themselves, when everything is screaming out of them inside their head, They've formed coping strategies to dissociate from that little kid. Yeah. To heal and to heal truly is to sit with that little person. <laughs> My dad, one of the smartest guys, you've had, from, you really? know, had numerous um, yeah. conversations with the old fellow on the phone. Without even him knowing, he gave me the best advice that I've ever gotten around, and it all made sense. What are we to the. It all made sense a decade later after he gave it to me after giving the advice, it didn't make sense. So it did make sense and it made sense to me at the time, but it made even more sense to me a decade later when I started to learn and re- read and understand about trauma. He said, when you're going down a dark hall," and this was on the back of the suicide attempt that I had back in 2012. He said, you need to learn to sit with that little person inside you. And I didn't know what he meant, right? He said, but everyone's got a little person inside of them. And that little person's scared. At one point in their life or at different times in their life, you're going down a dark hallway and that little person is terrified of what's down the other end. He said, There's a door and you don't know what's on the other side of the door. He said, what do you do? And I said straight away, I was like, I've got to kick the door down because I thought I had to impress my dad. Right? Mm. So I've got to kick the door down. And he said, no, that's not what you've got to do, Joe. You've got to grab that little person's hand and say, It's okay. We can do this. We can walk through this door together and everything will be okay. You're going to be safe because I've got your back. How profound. How Like how profound, how powerful, right? And what he was actually talking Mm. about is healing the inner child Mm. that we all sit with. Mm. That little person who screams at us is just that little person walking down that dark hallway that doesn't know what's on the other side of that
0: door. Where do you think he got that? Your dad was very similar to me. He went for all the boys' homes and grew up in boys' homes and sort of stuff. Went to a couple of similar boys' homes that I went to. Where did he get that knowledge from? Because he's obviously, he's faced his own trauma. There's no doubt about that. Yeah,
1: dad, dad's a, and again, I'm not telling dad's story. I have said numerous times that I believe that my dad is the, the most intelligent man that I've ever met, mm. but didn't go a day past year eight at school. Mm. His dad's someone who's a profound reader. He would just read and read and read and read all these different books. And like he wrote, he read books 25 years ago, like Excuses Be Gone and The Power of he Now. He was a researcher. Like he was someone who's always diving. We, we just talked about it and then the uh-huh. cave diver. He's someone who's just always looking for more knowledge. And he's always someone who's just challenged the narrative around different things. And he told me that back in 2012. And without doubt, it was some of the the best, most profound advice that I'd ever he- heard. And
0: then- When uh, you said that, I just want to interrupt. Like, when you said that, my parents, I picture it because my mother worked night shifts. So she'd sleep during the day and never used to have- My dad was, he'd just come home. He was disassociated. He'd just read books. He didn't engage. And beautiful man, very smart man. But a lot of my, I was self-sufficient from ever. I was cooking for myself at five years old. I'd be on a fucking chair cooking eggs and that sort of (laughs) stuff. And my mates would come out and say, I'm just cooking a bit of dinner. And i go, what? But I used to have this fear that someone was going to climb from my window when I was asleep. Mm. And it used to scare the shit out of me. I hated, I'd go and sleep on my brother's floor. I used to, and when you pictured, when you were talking that, I visualized, because I'm a visual person, I visualized The adult me walking into my room of me as a six-year-old and saying, mate, it's all right, sweetheart. I just want to move on to something now. There's big talk at the moment uh, about these troubled kids, Alice Springs, Townsville, and all of these areas, right? Let's not single out those towns as well. It's everywhere, right? Yeah, it's everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Statistically, the crime rate hasn't changed much, but it's been more publicised. That's being publicised, so yeah, and and let, let, let's talk about what's going on, and then for them kids, like how do we, how do, because people are saying how do we fix it? Yeah, I think there's there's not a one size fits all. Obviously, for
1: different communities, it's different things that that you know, and different there'll be different impacts on 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 different communities of what that is. But essentially, remember, and this is just my analogy or my opinion. Do you remember the time of the baby bonus? Yeah, yeah, wow. People were. From the government they were given a stack load of money when they had a kid mm. so what i see now is the kids that are running amok today and this is generally speaking mm. this isn't pointing the finger at any community or anything like this generally speaking with the amount of kids that i work with across the country generally speaking is that what we see now is that the kids that are having challenges or being challenges within the communities that we have are kids of the people born out of that era. Man, you know what? I never even noticed that. And you look at that, right? Yeah. Let's go deeper into that, Russ. Kids who are born out of the kids from that era. Okay? So those kids now who are under Mark are, being, are living with grandparents a lot of the times. Mm. Because their parents are now 30 yeah. in the absolute prime of their life. Because when they turned 18, between the ages of 18 to, say, 30, where a lot of people go out and they, a lot of people settle down late 20s, early 30s, right? Mm. But during those years, those people were having babies and they were at home and they couldn't go anywhere and they couldn't do anything. So now those parents are at an age where their kids are grown up. Their kids are now between the age of... To thirteen, and it's those young people that are running amok on our
0: streets. Hundred percent, and that's what I always say: that well-rounded kids ain't out in the streets of a night. Rounded kids that are validated at home have their sense of place, of belonging, sense of and a purpose, and they're in a structured family unit out in the street of a night. Deeper than that as well, Russ, right? You're, you're spot on with what you're saying, but deeper than that is that I'm not
1: one, for one minute pointing the finger at parents. No. That's not what I'm doing. I'm pointing the finger at society and saying that we don't have a village to raise our kids anymore. So times of you and I, or even people who are older than us, had a village. They had mums and dads at home. They had grandmother and grandfather who were always around the house. They had aunties and uncles who were around the house. In our communities, for thousands of years, we had a village that looked after yeah. us. Right? I like that Everyone analogy, says.
0: I like that analogy you talk about sitting around a fire with 10 psychologists when you're sitting around with the elders, you know what I mean? I'd like to really, man, I, I didn't mean, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there because you had a really good valid point, but you, in our previous conversation, you talked about that where the old fella, just can, take us back to that, take us through that conversation because I, I love that conversation. It's like we we always talk about,
1: professionals and their therapists and the, how valid they are and how important they are in, in society without a doubt but when we're talking about the village, the family village and we're talking about the community is that we always had people to look after our kids from a communal aspect yeah. or from a village standpoint and like I said around our fire grown up for thousands of years, there were 10 different people that looked after the family, that looked after, made sure that everyone was okay. That The kids knew to stay in line because they had multiple adults looking at them, looking after them. As we may lean on just the one therapist today, for thousands and thousands of years, we had multiple therapists for what, it, for what it is, they weren't trained in therapy. Yeah. But we had multiple people, multiple hands within our family unit to help raise our kids. And that's what we don't have today. That's what I always talk about. And I said earlier around our village is that we don't have a village anymore. And you'll see predominantly with a lot of different communities, the reason that there's a hell of a lot of kids playing up in today's society is that they have no connection. They have no identity, right? Identity around the behaviors they are, Who they have no idea who they are, mm. right? They just go, yeah, look at me, I'm this, this label,
0: Yeah.
1: whether it's- And they're, you know, trying, to,
0: they're trying to impress people with impress people. They're trying behavior. to live
1: up to that with their behaviors. They want to be the coolest kid on the yeah. block, all that sort of yeah. stuff. But they have these labels and they have no identity who they are. They have absolutely no idea of the direction that they need to live because there's- for the most cases right throughout the country I'll talk about, is that there's not wonderful role modelling and this is all communities.
0: But remember the day, Joe, you could get in the Police Boys Club and the copper would be there, you would hold the focus pads for you? Really big engagement, social engagement from people like the police. The police shouldn't be... Look, I encountered it in Mount Druitt, and especially my digital, well, Aboriginal friends would count it. We would get pulled... Two, me and my Aboriginal mate would get pulled over and he would cop. Fucking racial slurs, being harassed. And that set a bad taste in my mouth for what they were doing to my friends. And I'm a big believer give respect, get respect. You
1: know what I mean? We can't demand respect. You can't demand respect to a people or from a people that historically have been oppressed mm. for 200 years mm. by people who look like you. Mm. And who are coming at you and your community from that perspective. Like, that's what people don't understand, is that every single day that a young person, young Aboriginal person, walks out of their house, take it how you want. But many times, the carers in their house will say, watch out for police.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, that's what I talk about. I,
1: I, Police I, are supposed to help it. yeah, for sure. But, but to our community, they don't particularly. No. They haven't particularly, and that's that's well documented. When we're looking at Aboriginal deaths in custody, when we're looking at the there was a report that came out around over policing throughout the pandemic of Aboriginal and mm. coloured people. So that's well documented. These yeah, aren't is. opinions of mine. No. So, I, so I, there's not a great up. deal of trust. Yeah, with it, you can't. I can't with confidence. Mm. I can't with confidence.
0: But I, I went and done some talks up in Brisbane Youth Detention Centre with the so-called African street kid gangs, the kids that are born here, mm-hmm. but still labeled African street gangs, right? And some of the stories they told me their interaction with police, one kid went and worked and he got himself a pair of these Beats headphones and a couple pulled him over, smashed them on the ground, told him they were stolen. And then arrested him for, and it all, it's just rotten policing. Now, I remember there's coppers like Pat Jarvis. Pat Jarvis. Patty was, Jarvis. Yeah, Pat Jarvis had to, he The old took, man played St George with him. Yeah, mm. and he brought, he took Jeff Fennick into yeah. Newtown Newtown Police. He played a prolific part in Jeff Fennick's career. That old school coppers, net mate. I love the idea of coppers pulling up at the football field and having a game of touch and interacting and. That's how they get the best out of these kids. Not a Funny. I used to live with a cop. No. I used to live with a cop back in Dubba. Yeah. And we grew up together and
1: played played footy and touch footy and so forth together. Growing up, great guy. Yeah. Fantastic guy. At the end of the day, he goes out to work to get paid and do the best that he can for community for his job. Yeah. I can say that he does his best. Yeah, yeah. When he was in the force, he's no longer in the force, but I can say this, that in all walks of life, Russ, yeah. as well. There's dickheads everywhere. 100%. Right? In all walks of life. Yeah. So it's, it just comes back to treating people with respect.
0: For sure. No and
1: judgment. No yeah. judgment. And the racialized bias that people have, I won't say whatever workforce it yeah. is, people have, yeah. is all coming from a place of insecurity as well.
0: I remember once at one stage, the Vietnamese were really copping it. They really copped it. Some of the racial slurs and everything like and Over a period of time, they've been able to assimilate. But a lot of people haven't done that to Aboriginal people. Haven't allowed. Not, that's their country, and I say that we're walking. Uh, uh, but a lot of these racial people, like I just heard, I heard some of this, some politician on, on TikTok and the stuff that they are allowed to get away with. How they are allowed to offend people without anyone pulling them up and saying, "Hey, man, this is that's." I find it disgusting. I, growing up in Mount Drua, my friends were a lot of my friends were Aboriginal. I just loved them. I just, we didn't. We were the same. I didn't look at no judgment or anything like Why would I? I always say to a racist, if you're drowning at the beach, would you care who that, what the colour <laughs> of the person's skin was that was going to save you? <coughs> would you care? Would you say, "No, you're black" or "You're yellow" or "You're whatever"? I just it's just a sickening disease we've got to get out of society. The sooner we get out of it, the better. It's also a trauma response too, Russ. We talk mm. about like behaviour. Huh?
1: We talk about the, the impacts of trauma within communities. You know, I always say that the first people who got off the boats, and this is stuff that's well documented throughout the journals, throughout history. I think it was Governor Macquarie at the time said, we shall hang the natives in the trees to strike fear into the other natives. Mm. That's just... That's not word for word, but mm. I do have the quote in my phone, I can chase it up. But and but we have statues erected of these people. Yeah, yeah. They're celebrated. They're celebrated. I live in it I live at Dubbo on the Macquarie River. And it's named after the guy who was talking about hanging people in the trees to strike fear into the other natives. And we celebrate this in this country. And those people had kids and then they taught their kids that. And then those people had kids and they taught their kids that, and then they taught their kids that, and then they taught their kids that. But it's six six odd generations ago, right? If you live to, it's 230 odd years from those days, you only got to live to 50, and I'm not fantastic at maths, but that's only five or six generations, Mm. right? And we're living remnants of that now. So those older people who saw The first people of this country and said that they were worthless, said that they were hopeless, said that they were good for nothing. Like I said, told their kids and they told their kids and they told their kids and they told their kids. And then here we are today. It's any wonder that we have people still
0: charged by race. It's disgusting. That's no, disgusting. Honestly, it's hurtful. I think it's meant to be hurtful, Joe. I think it is because it creates that suppression because people always want people to be lower than... Someone's always wanting to, to lift themselves. It's like that, this big hater culture. I'm gonna, I feel like shit, so I'm going to make you feel worse than I do. That's that whole hater culture, and, and pff, what's the answer to that? Kindness, mate kindness yeah Stan Grant I mentioned Stan it Grant. he said it on when talking about Stan let's just clarify Stan's your cousin too isn't it yeah Stan's yeah. cousin yeah yeah. St- yeah so just
1: when he was when all that stuff happened around Q&A and he was the racial abuse and the racial violence let's call it that because that's what it is mm. that he copped online around different things that has a massive impact that has a massive impact on an individual. But he said statements like when we were talking about yinjamata, which is the term of respect and kindness for as Wiradjuri people. Um he said again, I'm 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 just I'm paraphrasing here, but he you know, our our people meet hate with love. And we have, like we have done, like I was I was delivering a session yesterday and an elder said, he goes and again, documented, right, that Aboriginal people, when they could throw spears, they could hit a kangaroo that was flying along the, flying along at a massive speed, flying along, they could hit a kangaroo 50, 50 metres away when they're thrown with mm. one of the spear throwers, right? They could hit it, no dramas. Mm. Do you honestly think when they turned up in the ships that our people couldn't have done that? Mm. Of course they could have. Yeah. But our people aren't inherently violent and warring people, mm. Right? again, documented how our First Peoples tribal people right throughout the country took non-Indigenous people in and showed them the way. How do you think white people got across the Blue Mountains? They, did, they didn't have a GPS. Yeah, yeah. Our people walked them through. So our, our people aren't inherently violent people. Mm. Violent people are there as a, a a trauma response out of a place of protection, right? Because somewhere along their path within their life, I'm not condoning it. That's Mm. not what I'm doing, Russ. I'm saying, I'm explaining it. Somewhere along their life, something happened to those people which forced them to respond and build coping strategies of protection. When people come of age, that protection can be violence
0: I always say this with the work I do at The Voice of a Survivor I say, and, I, and, and some of the stuff I'm doing with the prisons is the underlying issue of violence is trauma the underlying issue of drug addiction is trauma the underlying issue of self-harm is trauma now when we have these let's get tough on crime campaigns let's not worry about the crime let's deal with the trauma and the crime will go away <laughs> It's fucking you know, simple. Many of us have been speaking about that for a long time now. When you look at not even that. But how come, Joe, how come these academics and all these advisory people can't get that? How come they can't get us to that? That's it's blatantly obvious. Well, if you know what you're talking about, it's blatantly obvious. Yeah.
1: There's controversial terms and contra- controversial people. People like, how I, I mentioned him earlier, Gabor Mate, when he yeah. talks about how the end product of things like anxiety is formed within the, the end product that is the behavior of anxiety is the end product of our nervous system and the chemical cortisol being released into our brain that puts us into a fight or flight response, being turned on and off over and over and over in the early years of our life. Right. So anxiety now is just a response or a trigger to something that happened in the earlier years right. of their life. So what's now being medicated and diagnosed as a mental illness with things like anxiety is just a response from trauma. Yeah. It's the very reason I moved away from the mental health field, talking about mental health and healing mental health years ago, is because it's not mental health that's killing people. It's trauma yeah, and the early impacts of trauma in the early years of our life that we're then forming coping strategies later in our life, like alcohol, drugs, challenges with relationships and challenges with the early years and, and the f- building and, and, and forming early attachments in our life because we don't have a village anymore. Like it's all, when you look at it, It's just all so reflective. The way that First Peoples used to live for thousands of years is the answer to how we heal our communities. There's a brilliant book. It's by a guy called Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah. It's called What Happened to You? And it, it, it changes the conversation of what happened to people to what's wrong with people. Mm. Sorry. It changes the conversation of what's wrong with people to what happened to people. Yeah. Because when you understand what happened, you understand that the behavior is just a response to what happened, right? And in that book, Dr. Bruce Perry says, how ironic that the people- And cultures that have been most marginalized throughout the world will be the people that we turn to to heal our modern woes. Yeah, I love that quote. I love it. Which is everything around, and you have a look at, again, First Nation native practices around looking after country, looking after families, takes a village to raise a child. We don't have a village anymore. That's why we're so disconnected and so sick as people. You're looking at the different practices that we had, which were all a form of being present and around meditation and mindfulness. That's how we lived for thousands of years. Mm.
0: And And connection, connection to the earth. Connection to people as well. We're the most disconnected people in the world. I asked you We've we have conversations. I said, what about these what do we do with these kids? And he goes, Let's go find out what happened to them. Let's go and find out what's going on. I've got some ideas. I'd love to get out. And my biggest problem at the moment is the police don't want me out there. They don't want blokes like myself, you know, Jeff Morgan, people with long extensive criminal histories because I don't believe lived experience they'd rather take some university guy out there with some stats and stuff like I that
1: I also think we need to empower the local community as to what it is cause,
0: because yeah. local communities have the answers to different things Yeah,
1: local communities know what's but going on but not lynch on.
0: mobs not these yeah. lynch mobs that you're starting to see form and everything like that I think these kids are hearing them calling them filthy little animals and are ink. I don't know if that's going to be the. That's not going to be. That's just adding to the trauma. I think that self belief that these kids already have. That's what we have got to change. We're not going to reinforce that.
1: When we're hearing, when we're hearing grown adults talking about bringing violence to kids, yeah, yeah, as a form of fixing things, it's just so far off the mark, Russ. Yeah, like kids who are in trouble. What is the one thing that kids need? who are out there being destructive in communities and getting
0: themselves in trouble. The one thing, if you had only one thing to give them. Love. Oh, mate, there it is. Yeah, it's not rocket science. And that's what I say. I believe that love is the the antidote for trauma. For my own trauma, it was like getting that self-belief back, that self-love, that self-worth. And once I got all them things back, the the bad behavior stops. The drug addiction, the drug addiction stops. The bad behavior stops. And that cost-benefit analysis is done on every thought I do, everything, every action I make because I don't want to traumatise anyone else. I don't want to pass on my past traumas to anyone else. I've got that awareness of that and I do that through love. I didn't do it for someone calling me a shitbag and you horrible, rotten little person. I, I'd done it for four years with a trauma counsellor over the phone that I never, ever met, some little English woman who just gave me these coping mechanisms and strategies and to, to be able to compartmentalise and identify my thoughts, as you talked about hearing that narrative in your head, to be able to 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 be able to do things like that and to deal with my trauma and work out what was mine and what wasn't mine. And, and a big thing was to take ownership. And all of that, Russ, like... The tools, the strategies,
1: the identifying, the awareness is all back to what we said 10 minutes ago, Mm. learning to sit with that little person Mm. who's just insecure, who's just scared, who's just looking for love. Mm. And I also understand, and again, not, not, not at all pointing the finger at people as far as parents and carers. For not doing the right thing by their young people, what I'm saying is, I believe that everyone does the best that they can with the tools that they have. Yeah. Maybe we need to start changing the tool bag. Yeah. And we need to start equipping people with tools to help young people and show them love, because when we blow up at a young kid, like my own kids, hmm. when we blow up at a young kid. And you've mentioned it before that you've had different challenges with your young fellow when mm. he started living with you and things yeah. like that. When we blow up at a kid, we're blowing up at a young person who's struggling to communicate with us, but we're blowing up because that young person's triggering our needs. Mm. But we actually should be helping them with their needs rather than making it about us yeah. and blowing up back to them. That's so true. when we, we got, when we got kids blowing up, the first thing we need to do, come here. Is everything okay? Yeah, it's
0: that simple. Let's have a hug first, and yeah. then we can start to discuss it. That's beautiful.
1: I'll tell you what I'd love to do. I'd love to sit down with my old man. I'd love to have him here. Yeah. He'd be he's welcome around this table anytime. And just talk about different things. And you know what? The beauty of how we raise kids for thousands of years is that we're so critical of parents not raising their kids now, but we don't understand that the role that grandparents played in raising our kids for thousands of years. My oldest boy lives with my dad. Mm. He lives with my mum and dad. Is it? Does it impact me that he turns to my dad for more advice than he does me? I'm his dad. He should be coming to me. Does it impact me? No, it only impacts my ego. Because mm. I know that for thousands of years, it was his grandfather that said, here, leave him alone. Come with me. I'll show him what to do. Yeah. It was my job as a dad just to say, oi, stop doing that. This is what you got to do. Do the right thing. And the grandfather would say, "Hey, you leave him alone. Let me look after him." What a beautiful culture. And you know? so there's so much about the oldest people in the world Russ. The oldest documented history of people started right here in this country. We mm. need to learn so much about what they did and how they did it because you don't go on for 200,000 years living in a society we just walked around killing each other. Yeah, you don't live in that and last that long by doing negative things. There must have been some positive stuff that we can learn from, for sure.
0: It's a beautiful culture. Like man, I've been. Like I remember being out in Alice Springs with these beautiful Yindamu people, and I just went, "Wow, they've got it. Their peace was everything."
1: I was, I was just recently I told you, and we'll just finish on this: is that elder I was talking about? He, he talked to me about how. He talked to me about how it was documented in one of the journals that when they were observing Aboriginal people, when they first come to the mainland 230 odd years ago, when they were observing, they said that they only live with meaning, they only lived with purpose, again, I've got to find the right words, for two hours a day. They only did things practically with purpose for two hours a day. The rest of the day, they spent living with each other loving each other looking after each other and doing things together mm. like how much could we learn from that society yeah. how much of us now spend i reckon we spend about two hours with our kids yeah
0: yeah looking after important. each other on that note joey williams thanks for being on the sticker brother always a pleasure having you here always a pleasure mate you take it easy russ look yeah. after yourself likewise brother